You're listening to Torah Classes with Rabbi Mendy Goldberg. This class is a recording from a live class. Okay, good afternoon. And uh, today we're going to talk about being that today is also the... Uh, evening of, or tonight is going to be Rosh Hashanah of Hasidism with Yutas Kislev, so it's a special day as well. And so besides the Torah reading, we're going to intertwine everything together with Hanukkah, with Yutas Kislev, and put everything together to make it all get a cohesive and understanding and appreciation of what the time that we're in. Also next Monday is already Hanukkah, so God willing, we'll also be learning about Hanukkah next week as well. There was a fellow by the name of Jerome Motto, I think is how they pronounce his name. He was a very famous uh, psychologist. And he was a psychologist from the, on behalf of the uh, San Francisco Police Department. And he was one of the first people who was in suicide intervention. And he was a person who was called upon in many different cases when people were going to commit suicide and what to do. And one of the things that he did to be able to understand and appreciate people who are committing suicide was to see their letters and understand what they were writing before they committed suicide, and before they took their own life. And one of the events that totally changed his whole perspective and got him to understand and appreciate this idea a little more was there was a person who on his way to jumping off the bridge of the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, about a 30-year-old fellow, and they found on his table, before he went to commit suicide, a note that he left. And the suicide note said, I'm on, I'm on my way to the bridge. If one person on the way will stop me and smile to me, I will not jump. Unfortunately, he didn't find that person that smiled to him in the end of his life. What we see over here from what this fellow, the revelation that this made was, is that there's something unique. That every single person has the ability to change and transform somebody else's life. We are put into different places and positions and different opportunities that come our way. And we sometimes ask ourselves, what's the big deal? What am I here for? What am I doing? Yes, I can't fix everybody's problems. Why should I have to help everybody? Why? Who am I to even deal with that person's problems? And all of a sudden, the very fact that God put that person in divine providence, put that person in front of you, you can never know what kind of impact you can make on that person. Maimonides, in his laws of repentance, says as follows. Every person has to see the world as if it's on an equal balance. A balance of absolute, that it can be absolute destruction or absolute saving. That you can bring salvation to the world or God forbid the opposite. And the question is up to you, what are you going to do? Your one good deed can transform the entire universe. Imagine that. Your one good deed can transform the entire universe. Now you may say, how is that possible? What does that mean? How can a person, how can a person have that that one good deed should be that they should transform the entire universe? 
And over here, Maimonides is teaching us that a person has to live with the reality that is demanded of a person, that he has to see the world as in its equal scale, as in its balance. And you have to recognize and see that it is up to you. That by you seeing this person, you talking to that person, smiling at that person, you can make a difference. But how is it possible, you may ask? What am I? I got my own problems. I got my own issues. I got my own things I got to deal with. And even if I help that person, what is it, like a drop in the bucket? It's like one little drop, raindrop in the Atlantic. There are billions of people in the world. I'm going to help that person. That's going to make a difference. That's going to change the entire scope of the universe. That's going to make a difference. That's going to bring the world salvation. How is it possible? And the answer is, Maimonides tells you yes. The world is on that balanced scale. And yes, there is only one problem right now. One problem for this person, one problem for that person, one problem for another person, one challenge that person has to go over. But right now, what's in front of your face, what's in front of you right now, is the one and only problem that can actually solve the world. Because if every person sees their issue as the one and only issue, that will actually change the world. What does this mean? And we're going to analyze this a little bit more by going into this week's Torah reading and discussing about one of the most unique individuals in this in the Torah. A person who is uh, we read about right in the heart of all of the book of Genesis. A person who made it, so to speak, the first of his kind, but unfortunately didn't come to the top. He almost got there, but he didn't make it. And who are we talking about is Ruvain. Okay, sorry about the interruption. We're right back. I'm sorry. No. Okay. So what are we talking about? Just to recap where we're up to. We had a little uh, intermission there. <laughs> to recap where we're saying is that every single person in this world has the opportunity that things come their way, that they can make a difference. By Maimonides telling us that a person has to view the world as an equal scale, it tells us and it brings the bottom line home that when you see an issue that's happening in front of you, you may say, well, there are billions of people in the world. What's that going to make a difference? Therefore, Maimonides comes along and tells us and says, no, you have to view the entire universe as this is your issue. This is the issue that's going to happen, and that's the only way it's going to change. And by looking into this week's Torah reading, we'll be able to accentuate this point and bring the point home and see it, how it's relevant in our life and what we can learn from the Torah reading. This week's Horin, we read about a character by the name of Reuven. Reuven, who is the eldest of the Yaakov's children, he's the first Jewish firstborn, if you want to call it. If you look back, Abraham had one older child, one younger child. The older child turned out to be Yishmael, didn't turn out that great. 
Yitzchak had an older child and a younger child. The older one was Esau, the younger one was Jacob. Esau didn't turn out that great. And all of a sudden we come to Reuven, who's the oldest child of Yaakov, of his 12 sons. And at the same time, while Reuven is this beautiful young child who has this good heart, the challenges that stand in front of him, he begins, but unfortunately he doesn't make it to the top. What do I mean he doesn't make it to the top? At the end of the day, he doesn't get all the rights of the firstborn. Yosef becomes the firstborn, that he has the given that his two sons are given, given the double portion, while Yehuda is the one that gets the kingdom, and Reuven is left like the rest of the tribes. But what happens over here with Reuven? What's the story with Reuven that we're discussing? And the story with Reuven comes along and says, Reuven is an individual who sees Yosef about to be killed by his brothers. And as the Torah tells it, Reuven hears what his brothers are plotting and, pl and planning. And he says over here, you know what, don't kill him. Let's throw him into the hole. Let's put him on the side. And we'll deal with him later. And Reuven saves his life. The Talmud says, if Reuven would have known what was being said about him on high, he would have had a whole different perspective. He would have made it to the end. He would have changed. He would have changed history. What's going on over here? And what's the story happening here? What does it mean that if Reuven would have known what was going on, he would have changed? What didn't he know? What should he have known? And what's happening here? And if not, probably you can say the same question to every single person. If we would know what God has in mind for us, we would also probably change our mind. Like, what's the unique thing that we're saying that Reuven, if he would have known what God would have said about him, that he would have changed his mind? So what's actually happening over here? And let's take a step back. Reuven sees that his brothers want to kill Yosef. What does he say? Let's throw him in the ditch and let's put him aside. What was Ruvain's answer? What was Ruvain trying to do? What was Ruvain's perspective here? Where was he trying to head with this? So the Medrash says a very interesting thing. Medrash says that many times people see things in front of them. You see in a happening in, that's happening in front of you. You don't know what may be next. But God already above has it all planned out for you. And if you would only see what God has planned out, you would already do it. So the same idea that seemingly what's going on over here is that if we would see, so to speak, or actually we know what we need to do, the only problem is we have to have belief that if what we do, it actually changes. And that seemingly was the problem of Uve, is to believe that his actions can actually make a difference. That means if Reuven would have known what God had in mind, that means if he would see with true belief that his actions can make a difference, maybe he would have went to the end. If we would see that when we have proper love for our fellow Jew, that would actually bring Mashiach, it would change. But until now, it's only theory. Maybe we don't believe it properly. Because if we would truly believe it, then we would act like that. So let's understand what happened with Reuven, what the story is all about. And then maybe we can have a better understanding of what we're talking about. So let's start with the beginning. Who was Reuven? Reuven was not your average Jew. He was a very special Jew. He was the firstborn of, of Yaakov. He was not, as we mentioned before, as 
Adam's firstborn, who was Cain, who killed Abel. He was not like Abraham's firstborn, like Ishmael. He was not like Yitzchak's firstborn, like Esau. But he was a firstborn, fully authentic, proper Jewish individual who was a good heart and cared about every single person. Just to give you a little example, even the moment he was born, his mother called him Reuven from the words, Ki God saw my suffering, ishi, now my husband will love me. Leah understood that by having a child, this will bring and accelerate the love that she has for her husband and that her husband has for her. As the Talmud tells us in the case of Reuven, that Reuven said that when Reuven was born, over here, now that the very fact that Reuven was born would give him the opportunity that his father should love him, but even more so, the very fact that Leah said, look at what's the difference between my son and my father-in-law, or my father-in-law, Yitzchak's son, oldest son, Esau, he was the oldest, my, father, my husband had to cheat him, and over here my son is going to have to be the firstborn. He'll be the firstborn forever. She was looking forward to see this beautiful firstborn come to fruition. And then the next step in the episode that happens with Reuven in the Torah. Also a beautiful episode. He wasn't just a regular firstborn, but he was somebody that cared for his mother. His mother, after giving birth to Yehuda, stopped giving birth. She had second term infertility. And what did he do? He went and collected jasmine flowers, which were supposed to be for fertility, and brought it to his mother. He cared for his mother. And he made sure that when he brought those flowers, he didn't only bring the flowers, he made sure to take it from not from stealing, from Hefker, from non-owners, to be able to bring it to his mother. Eventually, his mother gave away those flowers to Rachel, and Rachel gave birth. Then there's a third episode in the Torah that tells us about Ruven. As soon as Rachel passes away, he wants to make sure, and he stands up for his mother's pride, and quickly he takes his mother's bed and moves it into Yaakov's tent, instead of Bilhah, who was Rachel's maidservant. He was admonished by it, by his father, before his father's passing. But this was something unique that he stood up for the respect of his mother. He was a very caring individual. And here we come to the fourth story of Reuven in this week's Torah reading. When this week's Torah reading begins to tell us about Yaakov's sons not getting along. Yosef comes and tells them dreams. And the other son says, what are you coming and telling us dreams? What do you think? You're going to be a ruler over us? You're going to be in charge of us? Who are you to tell us what to do? What do you have? And finally, the father goes to tell Yosef and says, go check up on your brothers. He checks up on his brothers. And as he comes to check up on his brothers, one brother says to the other, Shimon and Levi, who are already known for their ways of killing people, as we spoke about last week, see that all of a sudden they say, oh, look, the dreamer's here. The dreamer's here. And what do they say? Maybe we should kill him. Maybe let's do away with him. We'll cut up his shirt. We'll dip it into blood. And we'll say he's done with some goat, some wild animal attacked him. Reuven hears what happens. He steps up to the plate and he says, no, don't kill him, don't kill him. He says, you know what? Let's put him in the ditch. Let's put him in the hole. Let's keep him there for a while. And as Rashi explains, why did he put him there? to be able to save him from his brothers. And he saves him, wants to save him from his brothers. Reuben wanted to get some time and tells one, they sit down and eat. They'll go away. And eventually he'll take them out and he'll bring them to his father. Now why was Reuben so concerned? 
Ruvain says, imagine this kid doesn't show up at home. He went to visit his brothers. Who's his father going to blame? Who's going to be the first one? The oldest. Where were you to take care of your brothers? But what happens? Ruvain goes. The brothers sit down. They start having lunch. And all of a sudden, a big merchant fleet of Arabs come by. Yehuda says, hey, let's make a few bucks off our brother. What are we going to gain by killing him? They pull him out of the ditch. They sell him to the merchants. They sell him to the Arabs. He goes down to Egypt. And for the next 22 years, they never see each other again. What happened to Ruvain? What happened to his plan to save him? He's about to save him, but all of a sudden the plan's foiled. It doesn't happen. Where is he? Why wasn't he there to save his brother? Ruvain returns to the hole. He comes back to the ditch and he sees his brother is missing. He tears his clothing and he said, what am I going to do now? But what happened to him? Where is he? Where did he go? So the Talmud tells us where was he? Because he realized he made a mistake a few years back when he moved the bed into his, his mother's bed into Yaakov's tent. He realized his mistake and he was praying for repentance. He was praying for repentance, asking God. He went to honor his father and ask for repentance for what he did wrong. He was praying that his repentance should be accepted. Now the question is, Ruvain, what's with you? You're about to save your brother. You leave the job in the middle to go pray. Your brother's about to be killed. You took them and you heard them they want to kill him. You put them in the hole that you should save him. And all of a sudden you run off in the middle. What are you doing? Where do you go? Where do you disappear? Now you can imagine when he comes back and he sees that his brother's not there. You understand why he's upset. Because he missed that on an opportunity to save his brother. As we see at the end, at the end of the story is that Reuven does lose his birthright. Yaakov takes the kingship, gives it to Yehuda, and takes their firstborn and gives it to Yosef. So we see you very good over here that Yehuda is the one that was able to, see, so to speak, be successful where Reuven was not. Because Yehuda saved Yosef. He took him out of the ditch and sold him to Egypt. He maybe didn't bring him back home. But the bottom line is he saved him from being killed. So what's going on over here? How is it possible? Why is it that a person like Ruvain, who was able to make it to this one point, but is one able to bring it to the top? What was missing here? What was the problem? What is Ruvain's fault? What does Ruvain do wrong? What was Ruvain's issue that he wasn't finally able to bring the, bring the kid home? He wasn't able to come to the final stretch. And we analyze this as we look about and understanding the importance of who Yosef was, who Yehuda was, and looking into the personalities of the tribes, we'll be able to understand better to what's going on over here. Just on a side note, there were some commentaries that ask, what was Reuven even thinking by putting him into the ditch? Seemingly, the ditch was also a dangerous place. Especially if you learn the commentaries, like Nachmanides says that it, the Torah says it was a ditch that had no water, to tell us there was no water in it, but there were snakes and scorpions. That can also kill the kid. So someone who explain and say that actually Reuven's motive was to see if Yosef was actually liable of capital punishment. That means we don't have the liability to go ahead and kill him. He's telling Shimon Alevi, you want to kill him because since he believes he's a ruler and he's going against what you believe, Okay, that's God's job. 
put him in a ditch. If God kills him, you know that he deserves to be killed. If he survives, then we have to take him out. Since when do you have to get involved? In God's business. But what's really going on over here, if Reuven was this person, if Reuven was a person that cared so much, we see throughout history of Reuven's life, he cared for his mother, he cared for his father, he cared for Yosef. So what went wrong here? And the problem is that Reuven did not believe. What does it mean he didn't believe? He didn't believe in himself. He didn't believe that he can actually save Yosef. He didn't believe that he can actually stand up to the brothers of Shimon Alevin and say, no, don't do it. So what was he looking only for? A distraction. Okay, I can't get them right now to let him go, so I'll tell them to put him in a ditch. But did he truly believe that he can save his brother? Absolutely not. He spoke to them. He argued with them. But then when they were sitting down and talking, they remembered about Yosef. And when he came back, it was already too late. Ruvain, you don't see, had any argument with his brothers. Ruvain just said, let's put him here until something happens. Over here, what it's telling us is that Ruvain was, because in fact, what was Ruvain concerned about? What was he concerned about? Was he concerned about Yosef or was he concerned about himself, what he's going to have to answer to his father? If you look in the words of Rashi, he says, Ruve wanted to save the child so that his father shouldn't have any worries. He shouldn't have to answer to, he should have what to answer to his father. He shouldn't be the one that's blamed. So who was Ruve looking to really save? Himself. He didn't think he can save his brother. He didn't know he can stand up against Shimon and Levi. But he says, I gotta save myself. I gotta tell my father I did my best. And how can I tell my father I did my best if I don't say, let's delay this. Let's use a distraction. You may say, what was Ruvain to do? He's standing up against Shimon and Levi who killed out the people of Shechem. This is what the Medrash tells us. If Ruvain would know what God was saying about him, he would have been successful. Meaning, if Ruvain would have believed for a moment that it wasn't him that was saving Yosef, but the God was standing behind him to be successful in the mission that he would have to do, he would recognize and understand that he would be successful in saving Yosef. This is exactly, this story is not a story of the past. Story of the present and every single one of us. In every critical moment that we stand in front of something or someone, that we can change the predicament, we can change the outcome. We have to remember, number one, we're not there alone. In every moment of our life which is critical, we have to remember that every single moment that you are standing there, it is critical for that moment. It is the most important thing happening at that moment. And when you are standing there, you're not standing there alone. Just like when Moses was standing in front of the burning bush. And Moses was standing in front of the burning bush and God tells him, go down to Egypt and take the Jewish people out of Egypt. What does Moses say? Who am I? What am I? Why should I be the one to go take the Jewish people? I can barely talk. I have a speech impediment. Who's going to listen to me? What does God tell him? I am the one that sent you. I am standing behind you. It's not you. You're not the one saving anybody. You're not the one taking anybody out of Egypt. I don't need your speech impediment or yes or no. I am sending you. Automatically, if I'm the one sending you, then you have the ability. So too is the same thing. A person may ask, a person comes to me, how can I solve all the issues in the world? 
There are billions of people. There are billions of issues. Everybody's got their challenges. Everybody got their problems. Everybody got their peckle. What do you want from me? God's not telling you to solve everybody's problems. God's not telling you to solve the entire world's problems. But God is telling you that if something came your way, that if something is standing in front of you, that means that you have the power to do it. And if you don't do it, God will find some better people to do it. But the very fact that you have it, you got to be able to do. You have the ability and you have the power to be able to do it. The same message was told by Esther. Mordechai tells Esther when the Megillah, Who knows if this is the time that why you reach the kingdom? Esther was coming along and saying, what do you want me to do? The king never saw me. The king hasn't called me in. It's been 30 days. I haven't seen him. He doesn't talk to me. If I go in, I could get killed. What does uh, Mordechai answer to her? Why did you come? Why did you become queen? It's not you. God put you here. And if God put you here, he's behind you. You're not fighting alone. Take Reuven and contrast him to Yehuda and Yosef. To Yehuda and Yosef, the two people who got Reuven's merits, who received the firstborn and became king. Both of them lived a life and understanding and an appreciation of recognizing that if there's something here, we got to do something about it. You don't just let an opportunity be exploited. You utilize the opportunity that if it's there, that means God wants you to change the situation. They were not lazy. They did not stand back. They didn't let the situation just happen. Let's take the story about Yehuda. Yehuda never lifted his hands. Never had to wage a war. But he was able to determine, and with his determination, he was able to bring about change. In the story of Yosef, the brothers are sitting around, and they, Yosef is in the ditch. The merchants come by. What does Yehuda say? We're not going to make any money out of this, so let's take him and sell him. What did he actually do? He saved his life. He didn't wait for somebody to come along and say, maybe, could be, and put him on the side, could create a distraction. There was a situation. Yosef was in the hole. He was about to be killed. He said, let's take him out and sell him. He saved his life right away. Then we come a little bit further into the Torah reading. Yehuda and Tamar. Tamar was being accused of being mis, uh, promiscuous. And because of that, she was liable of capital punishment. Yehuda was the one that he, she was promiscuous with. And what does Yehuda say? She's 100% right. Justified. She should not be killed. I'm the one that's wrong. He admittedly to say what was wrong. Then later on, when we come to the next Torah reading, when the ruler of Egypt, not knowing that it's actually their brother, takes Binyamin as a captive, what does Yehuda stand up and say, no, you're not going to take him. He doesn't let things pass. He doesn't create distractions. He's ready to go to war to save the child. Similarly, we come to this week's Torah reading in the last two alias. We read a story of 23 verses. Yosef comes down to Egypt. After he's in Egypt, he does very, very successful in Potiphar's house. And once he's very successful in Potiphar's house, then he's accused by Potiphar's wife of seduction and so on, and he's thrown into prison. And the last 23 Torah, verses in the Torah reading tells us a fascinating tale. That Yosef is in charge of the prison, and in the prison, there's the baker and the butler, and they have bad dreams. And Yosef comes to them and tells them, why are you so long-faced? Why are you so sad? And he starts interpreting the dreams. 
and tells us what the dreams will be and how they both go back to their positions and everybody lives happily ever after. Besides Yosef who's stuck in jail. Why does the Torah go through a whole episode and a whole story about an Egyptian baker and an Egyptian butler that had a bad dream? Big deal. They're the first people that had bad dreams. The story of the creation doesn't even have so many verses. The Ten Commandments is almost the same amount of verses. But the Torah goes on to tell us 23 verses about how he was in the prison and what he did in the prison and when he woke up and he went to sleep and had a bad dream and had a good dream. Who cares? Why is it so important? And the Rebbe tells us over here because the Torah is teaching us a valuable lesson with this episode. A lesson which is not only a lesson, but a lesson that obligates us to recognize the moment, the call of the time. Which is, if you see something, you say something. You see something, that means God wants you to see it, and you're obligated by it. Over here, you can take, take the case of Yosef. He's a prisoner. His mother died at a young age. You can call him the Nebuch of the Shebel. Everything that happened, happened to him. He lost his mother at a young age. He's estranged by his family. He hasn't seen his father in 22 years. And he's in prison. The moment he becomes successful, he's thrown into prison. More problems in life you can't find than this individual. He's sitting in prison. You think, okay, state himself. Be a, be a, take care of your own issues. Let him moan in his own ideas and bemoan his situation. But no. He sees two people and they're sad. So he goes over to them and asks them, how are you doing? What's the matter? What are you getting involved in other people's? You stay in your cell, he'll stay in his cell. Why is he getting involved in them? Why does he have to mix into it? But Yosef said, no. If I see something that means that God wants me to get involved. That means it's my responsibility to help in the situation. And therefore, when he sees the butler and the baker and they're long-faced and they're sad and they're depressed, he goes over to them and asks them, Adua, why is your face so today? Why are you so sad? He doesn't say, I got my own issues. I got my own problems. I haven't seen my brothers. I haven't seen my father. I lost my mother. He doesn't say that. He sees a person in need. He says, how can I help you? What can I do? What can I do to help you? All of a sudden, he's like he's the best psychologist. He's becoming the therapist of the jail. But what is he seeing? All of a sudden, at this point, this point, the story is telling us even more than that. He didn't just help these individuals. He didn't just tell them and make them feel good. And here's the kicker of the entire story. You think you're helping that person? You're truly helping yourself. Yosef thought he's helping these people, the baker and the butler. He's going to interpret their dreams, bring a smile on their face. But instead, not only did he help the baker and the butler, but he helped himself that because of this, he came out of jail. Not only did he become come out of jail, but he became the viceroy of Egypt. And because of that, he saved the entire world economy, which was Egypt from falling into hunger. So from this little episode, from thinking about another person, from caring about another person, from recognizing that when the story comes in front of you, it's not somebody else's story, it's your story. When an episode happens and you see an event in front of your eyes, 
You have to recognize that it's your event because you can make a difference and not only you're making a difference for those people, but you're actually making a difference for yourself. The Rebbe puts it this way. The Rebbe puts it this way and he says as follows. And in 1974, 1973, in the Torah reading of Miketz and Hanukkah, the Rebbe explained as follows. He says, when a Jew lights a menorah, you light one candle on the menorah. You say, big deal, my candle, my house, my window. What does it make a difference? So the Rebbe says, when you light one menorah, one candle in your own home, you are affecting and changing the education of the world. Where do we see this in this week's Torah reading when it comes to the story of the baker and the butler? The baker and the butler or Yosef sees that they're having dreams and he intervenes and he wants to explain to them their dreams. You say, what does Yosef have to do with it? Over here we learn a very important lesson that when a person is in a state of downtrodden, he's depressed, he's sad, and you look out for them. And you ask how they're doing. And you ask the person, how are you feeling? Just call him up and see how he's doing. What are you saying? You're showing that you care. But not only are you showing that you care, not only are you helping that person, but you're helping yourself just like because of this Yosef became the viceroy and eventually and changed the entire universe. The same thing is even more so when it comes to lighting a Hanukkah menorah. When you light the Hanukkah menorah in your house and somebody sees it from the window or somebody even knows that you're lighting the menorah, they then said, if that person's lighting the menorah and breathing joy into their life, maybe I should bring joy into my life and I will bring joy into somebody else's life. Who do I know that does not have a menorah that I can get them a menorah or to celebrate Hanukkah together with them? And automatically has a ripple effect and a change on the world. This is the meaning as also we're standing now in the year of Hakel. Hakel was when all the Jewish people gathered together in the Holy Temple every seven years and the king would read to them from the Torah. But it wasn't just about gathering, it was about caring for one another. It was about thinking about another person that men, women and children all came together and they saw one person learning Torah. They were inspired to learn Torah themselves. When you put and you discuss and you reckon and you, and you learn with somebody else, you're then creating this ripple effect of seeing the positive actions that are happening. As we mentioned in the beginning, Tonight is going to be the 19th of Kislev. The 19th of Kislev is the Rosh Hashanah for Hasidism. And the Rosh Hashanah for Hasidism, which Hasidism brought to the world, this message, this idea to be proud and to be able to have that self-confidence and recognize that it is not you alone that it is changing the world, but God is behind you in every action, but even more so, that you have to more believe in yourself that you can help the person. And when you believe in yourself that you can help that person, you will be able to help that individual. This is brought, the Baal Shem Tov explains this on a Talmud, which is brought about the saddest time in Jewish history by the destruction of the Temple. The Talmud says that it is because the humility of Reb ben Afkulas that the Holy Temple was destroyed. One reading this Talmud would say, what kind of business is this? Humility usually is a good thing. Reb Zechariah ben Afkulas was one of the great sages. Why would we say it's his fault that the, Talmud, that the Temple was destroyed? And the story goes as follows, and you know, I'm sure you know the famous story of Kamta and Bar Kamta. There was once two individuals, a fellow in Jerusalem, who decided to make a big wedding and he invited his friend Kamta. However, the mail service made a mistake and delivered the letter to Bar Kamta, who was his nemesis, who he didn't like him that great. And into the meal showed up Bar Kamta, and Bar Kamta shows up to the meal, and the fellow says, I never invited you, get out of here. 
Bar Kamsa says, come on, I already came, I'll pay for my meal. He says, I don't care, get out of here. I'll pay for half the party. He says, I don't care, get out of here. I'll pay for the entire party. He says, I don't care, get out of here. And all the rabbis were sitting there and nobody protested. Bar Kamsa came along and said, if this is the way a Jew can behave and no rabbi protests, that's it with them. I'm going to inform them to the Romans. And he went to the Romans and he said, the Jews are rebelling against you. He said, well, but prove it to me. He says, you know what? Send a sacrifice, see if they bring it. They sent a sacrifice and on the way, Bar Kamsa made a cut in its lip. According to the Roman dictum, a cut in the lip is not considered a defaulty sacrifice. But according to Jewish law, a cut in the lip is considered a blemish and cannot be brought as a sacrifice. When they came to bring the sacrifice by the Holy Temple, the Kohanim did not know what to do. Should we not bring the sacrifice, the Roman would consider it a rebellion. Should we bring the sacrifice? It's considered, it's going to be considered as something which is a blemish. We're not allowed to bring it. So they turned to the great scholar of Scharib and of Kulas and they asked him, what do we do? So they said, well, maybe a good idea would be, let's kill Bar Kamsa so he won't be able to bring back the sacrifice and say we didn't do it and we won't have to bring the sacrifice. Reb Zechari ibn Afkula said, then they're going to say that people who bring sacrifices with blemish get killed. So they said, so what should we do? He says, you can't bring it. You have to send it back. And because they sent it back, they automatically decided that that was a rebellion and that began the destruction of the temple. So what's the humility here? Why is it called the humility of Reb Zechari ibn Afkilas? You can say maybe he didn't have the foresight. You can say that maybe he didn't appreciate the, the severity of the situation. What does this have to do with humility? And why is it Rebzchari's fault? It was the Jew in Jerusalem who kicked them out. The people that were misbehaving or had no... Or maybe the rabbis that were sitting there that didn't protest. But why Rebzchari ben of Kilas? And the Baal Shem Tov explains as follows. The Baal Shem Tov says because it was the humility of Rebzchari ben of Kilas who he thought that he can change the situation. Rebzchari ben of Kilas was sitting there and said the Jews are in this bad situation... The temple's going to be destroyed. There's no changing. Just leave it the way it is and don't bother with it. That's what Reb Chaim and Afkila said. He said, don't kill him. Don't bring the sacrifice. It's over. You guys messed up. You hate each other. You killed each other. That's it. There's no hope. He did not believe that he can change the narrative. He did not believe that he can change Jerusalem. He had the humility. He said, who am I to make a difference? It was humility in it, not in its proper place. And because of that, he didn't intervene. And because of that, he didn't stand up for what was right. And because of that, the Jerusalem was destroyed. He was, that was the symptom of what was going on in Jerusalem at the time. It was a symptom of how the people behaved. It was a symptom of how people saw the rich guy went, kicked him out. Nobody protested. Why didn't they protest? Because I'm going to say something. Somebody's going to listen to me. And if I say, they're going to listen. Instead of standing up to the plate, the situation came in front of you. Do something about it. But instead, what did they all do? Shrug their shoulders. What can I do? Nobody's going to listen. Anyway. And therefore, Barakamsa himself went and brought about the destruction. But it was the humility of people thinking that they can't do anything to change the situation. And this is where the lesson that we learn from all of this is. The greatest mistake is, people say, what, do you think there's no problems in the world? There's no challenges in the world? Of course there is. But not every problem in the world is yours. The only problem that you have to deal with is the one that you have. And when you deal with your challenge, your problem, then then you have succeeded in changing the world. What does it mean 
a wealthy person. What does it mean, a brilliant person? They didn't go and take somebody else's money. They didn't go and take somebody else's wisdom. They deal with what they have. They control their emotions. They control their finances. If people would be in control and stand up for what is right, the story of Bar Kamsa would have never happened. It just wouldn't have happened. The rich man wouldn't have got angry at Bar Kamsa. The sages would have stood up to protect Bar Kamsa. And the whole episode would have never happened. And the same thing is with every other story that happens. If people will stand up and recognize when something comes their way and recognize that they are not too humble to be able to do something, then the world will be a different world. The reason why we have these events and episodes in the world, the entire exile is about everybody's looking at themselves with this false humility. Who am I? What can I do? Why do you think that I can actually change anything? That was Ruvain's problem. That was Ruvain's issue and therefore he didn't merit to be the firstborn. Therefore he wasn't the one to be able to be the king. Because he did not believe in himself that he can change it. Instead he was worried, praying. He didn't think that he can actually save Yosef. He was looking for distractions. Yehuda stepped up to the plate. Yosef stepped up to the plate. God is waiting for every single one of us. Every single one of us to be able to step up to the plate. And recognize and realize that the world is on a balanced scale. That when we realize and view that the action and the person standing in front of us changing that challenge, overcoming that obstacle is going to make a difference to the world, then you'll be able to do it. View this individual, view this action as it's going to make a difference in the world. And will make a difference and change the scale, then automatically have a whole different perspective. That will finally break through and bring about the final redemption, when we each recognize that we do have the ability, that we believe in ourselves, because you know what? God believes in us more than we believe in ourselves. And when we believe in ourselves as much as God believes in us, because as the Medrash says, He's right behind us. He is there encouraging us. He put it there in front of us because He knows we can do it. He's now asking us, come on, step up to the plate. Do your part.